Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone and welcome back to TVP. This week we have value investing heavyweight Monish Prabhai joining us. Monish is the founder and CIO of Prabhai Funds, the founder of the Dakshana Foundation, a close friend of Warren Buffett and a frequent bridge opponent of Charlie Munger. He joins Juan and Andy Evans on this episode to discuss how Monish's dad's entrepreneurial experience shaped his understanding of risk. His commitment to leave as a pauper by giving everything away to charity through Dakshana and following the great example of Chuck Feeney. The rationale behind cloning as a strategy, why he never went for the insurance model, and concentration in ergodicity. Finally, you will note some variety in the audio quality this episode. The joy of having guests join us from across the world also means that we're at the mercy of some fickle tech, but we hope that it doesn't disrupt your experience too much. Thanks for bearing with us and enjoy. Monish Pabre, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? It's wonderful to be here and uh, thank you for having me. It's excellent. Where do we find you today? I'm at my home office in uh, in Austin, Texas. That's very nice. Manish. What about you guys? Where are you at? Well, we are at the very amazing Chudoders recording studio at the moment, enjoying this conversation with you. If you right. are a value investor, it would be very difficult that that person has not heard about you. But for those that might not know you, could you please provide them with a brief summary and introduction about yourself? Sure. You know, I always tell people who are introducing me that the thing that they should not skip in the introduction is that something I'm very proud of is I got a lifetime ban at a casino in Vegas who basically told me I could never play blackjack at their casino and i told them you know i'm not counting cards uh, because normally you ban people who are counting cards and they said yeah you know it took us about six months to figure it out and yeah we agree you are not counting cards but we cannot win against your system so i asked them if they would give me a letter you know like a graduation certificate and they said no you're just banned and uh, that's that so anyway i've uh I've I've been a uh, a, a student of uh, Buffett and Munger and Graham now for uh, almost thirty years. I I heard about Warren Buffett for the first time in nineteen ninety four, and it opened up a big new world for me. I had never actually bought a stock before that. Never really uh, worked in the industry. And I was really intrigued and fascinated as I read the first 
few biographies that had come out on Buffett and then the Berkshire letters and then the Buffett partnership letters and, uh, you know, just opened up a whole new world for me. And basically, uh, I just kept reading and learning and started to invest following that approach uh, in 94. And about five years later, I had some friends who asked me to manage money formally for them, the small amount, uh, eight guys, a total of a million dollars. And that's what led to the formation of Pabrai Funds. I didn't plan at that time for it to become a, a full-time vocation. I thought it would be just something on the side for me and my friends. I manage about $900 million now. It's mostly high net worth families. And uh, the funds have been around for about uh, 24 years. And over the years, uh, surprisingly, Warren and Charlie both became friends, which was not expected. <laughs> you know, we always think of them as, you know, icons, never to be touched or met or interacted with. And so that was uh, interesting. And I used to play uh, quite a bit of bridge with Charlie on Fridays at the LA Country Club, which he doesn't do now because uh, he's uh, not so mobile. So that's kind of a quick backdrop. And before we get into the world of probabilities and kind of asking you about investing, we, we came across your Dakshana uh, Foundation, if I've pr pr pronounced that correctly. Um, can you tell us yes, a little bit yeah, about that yeah. before we um, before we go into the, the rest of the interview? Oh, sure. Yeah. So just yesterday, there was a, a news in the New York Times that Chuck Freeney had passed away. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Chuck Freeney, but there's a book uh, called The Billionaire Who Wasn't. And it's a great book to read. And Chuck Freeney, I think over his uh, lifetime, gave away about $8 billion or more uh, to charity. He tried to do it anonymously. Uh, he actually uh, went to great lengths to make sure sometimes that the recipients didn't know who the who the person giving the money was. And uh, his objective was to die with zero. And uh, so he was 92 when he passed away. And uh, I think a few years back, maybe three or four years back, he moved into a rental, a, a simple rental apartment in uh, San Francisco. And he was down to, I think, his last two million. And I think he pretty much accomplished what he sought to do, which is to die with zero. And that is what I'm trying to do, you know, live up to the Chuck Freeney standard, die with zero. And I'm going to be leaving planet Earth on June 11th, 2054, <laughs> about 30 odd years from now, 30 years and a few months. And one day before that, which is June 10th, 2054, I hope to be down to $100. So there is one engine which is compounding assets and increasing wealth. And there's another engine, Dakshana, which is focused on giving it away. And I started Dakshana about 17 years ago, basically because I knew that, you know, trying to start this when I was 70 or 80 years old, I wouldn't have much energy to do anything. So we started small about 17 years ago. And the idea was to, uh, become good at giving money away. Uh, giving money away is far more difficult effectively. Giving it away effectively is far more difficult than making money. 
And uh, so Dakshana basically amazingly has done uh, far better than I expected. It's been very effective at the giving. And basically we identify very poor, but brilliant kids in India who come from families which are typically making well under a hundred dollars a month, three, four dollars a day or less. Uh, some of them are two dollars a day. And we basically uh, take over their education for about two years from 16 to 18. And we get them to the IITs, uh, which are like the MIT of India or Ames, which is like the Harvard Medical School of India. And it does a full reset for the family and the community because um, their income levels go to you know world standards at, at that point. And uh, currently, Dakshana is spending about three odd million a year. And the objective is that we just started a program about 13 million of CapEx in the next three years to increase our capacity. But the idea would be that hopefully if the compounding engine works in the next three decades, then the giving engine needs to work even better because uh, as we compound money, then uh, I need to amp it up uh, like Mr. Freeney. So that's what Dakshana is all about. Basically, I like to play games. I like to play blackjack. Dakshana is a game. Abrai Funds is a game. Bridge is a game. I just like to play games. That's really nice. You've mentioned in the past that, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, when you were growing up, your dad was an entrepreneur. And you would see him many times start new businesses and those businesses not doing very well. And then he would start all over again. And so we thought that it would be nice to start our conversation by framing how did that experience shape risk for you? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Actually, my my dad was exceptional at ident identifying offering gaps in the market. He was really good at kind of looking at kind of what was going on around him and saying, "Oh, this product or this service doesn't exist." And I know that if I create this product or service, it's likely to do well. And so his hit rate on those was extremely high. So usually when he had a startup, and in India, there was no ecosystem of venture capital or anything, or even bank financing for that matter. Uh, he repeatedly started with zero. And he was almost always right about the opportunity. I think he was very good at identifying those gaps that existed. The issue he had was that he was an eternal optimist and he was in a hurry. So once the business got going, he would want to grow it as fast as possible. And so these businesses typically had a very thin layer of equity and capital and as much leverage and debt as the banks would give him. And he was just constantly maxing on the leverage uh, to grow as quickly as possible. And the moment the first headwinds would show up, and there would always be headwinds, you know, we always have headwinds in business. These businesses just were not built to withstand even the lightest winds uh, because they were just always levered to the health. And they would invariably crumble and fail because. The ecosystem also was not there that you could get other financing or someone to give you equity or something like that. And uh, so he would go back to square one 
And amazingly, uh, he would, in a few months, concoct up a new idea and get going again. And I saw him do this repeatedly. And uh, he was a very logical uh, engineer, uh, kind of rational thinker. And um, I remember that one time when I was about 10 years old, there used to be this uh, kind of astrologer who used to come to our home on Sunday. And this guy's, you know, wearing like orange robes and has all these marks on his forehead. <laughs> and my father would sit with him and ask him to tell him about the future. Okay. And the astrologer would give my father various data points of what was going to happen and so on. And then next Sunday, the astrologer would be back. So I mustered up the courage to go up to my dad and said, you got to know that this guy is full of shit, <laughs> that he doesn't know nothing and we don't have money and everything's like gone. And you give him money every week and then he shows up the following week. Why would you want to do this? And he said that when I give him money and I ask him about the future, he gives me a very rosy forecast for what's about to happen next in my life. And I suspend reality when he's talking to me like that. And he is the rope. He said, I'm, I'm at the bottom of a very deep well. And I need a rope to come out of that well. And he is my role because he tells me these stories about these new businesses that I'm going to create and that they're going to prosper and that things are going to be great. And that is my rope to come out of that well, not be depressed and go start the next business. So that was the uh, experience. The impact it had on me was that um, I was lucky that my dad was doing really well when it came time for my brother and I to go to college. And he wanted us to come to the U.S. for college. And thankfully, he could afford it at that time. So we came to the U.S. and I was I studied engineering. And my plan was to never, ever be an entrepreneur and to never, ever start any business because I'd seen this huge gyrations up and down. And I just didn't want that. And I said, okay, if I get a good engineering degree, I'm going to get a good job. And I'm always going to be able to have a job. And life is going to be stable. 15% is going to go into my retirement account, into index funds. And that's going to grow and all of that. And um, uh, my dad was visiting me, I think about three years after I started working. And he told me that he was disappointed, you know he had all these aspirations of what I might do. And here I was, you know, doing some nondescript cog in a wheel of a large company kind of thing. And I told him, do you remember my childhood? And do you remember the trauma? He said, oh, life just, that was all excitement in life. You know, we can't have a boring life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was able to prevail on me and I uh, moved. Um, I basically left my my job and started my first business and then went from there. It's a great story. We've read the book, uh, Richer, Wiser, Happier, 
by William Green. And you're, you're profiled in there. And the main thing around your profile is about cloning um, and how you, you've really made your career out of being a, a great cloner. Can you talk us a little bit through you know, what, what you were doing when you were cloning and, and who the, the people of your, your cloning or the subjects of your cloning were? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, uh, Charlie, Charlie Munger talks about these mental models. And I think cloning is a very powerful mental model. One of the weird, unusual things about humans, and I still don't know why this is the case with humans, is most humans have a strong aversion to cloning. I'm not sure where that comes from in evolution, but they think it's beneath them. They almost think it's like copying or something like that. Uh, Also, a lot of humans will believe that, oh, you know, Starbucks is such a great idea, but it's already been done. Or, oh, you know, Soul Cycle is a great idea, but it's been done. And actually, there's room for many Starbucks. And there's room for many versions of the same business. And that's the other thing that humans have a, a, a false mental model where they see that someone has done something innovative and uh, they think that it's done. You know, the, There's no opportunity there. And we run into some humans, like, for example, if you, if you look at a company like Microsoft, you know, they spend so many billions of dollars a year on R&D. They've got Microsoft Research, which in several decades, more than four decades, have produced nothing. You know, they just keep having these very smart PhDs funded and all of that. Nothing comes out of that lab. But what has worked for Microsoft is they saw WordPerfect and they cloned it and created Word. They saw Lotus 1, 2, 3 and created Excel. They saw Nescape and, you know, created Microsoft Explorer. And now Edge, uh, you know, Search. You know, they created Bing and you know what Bing stands for is, but it's not Google, mm-hmm. you know? And so all the successes Microsoft has had has come from being an intense cloner. So Apple invented the mouse. Actually, Apple copied the mouse from Xerox Park Labs. You know, that's where they, they copied it from. And Microsoft wanted to make the mouse work in a MS-DOS and Windows world, which was a big challenge because of the very different architecture. And they were just dogged about it. And uh, they finally, the engineers were able to do it and you know they created Windows. And Microsoft's not even a great cloner. You know, Windows took like 15, 20 versions before humans could actually use it. And they still complain, it's not as good as that. <laughs> you know? So even not being that great a cloner, gives you a huge advantage. Sam Walton with Walmart, I think for the first 15 years or 20 years of Walmart's existence, there was absolutely nothing new that Walmart came up with. It was a completely cloned model taken from Kmart, taken from Sears. And Sam Walton spent an incredible amount of time in his competitor stores. So whenever he was traveling anywhere to see any Walmart or scout new locations, he was always going into the retail stores of even small, you know, mom and pop competitors. And 
he didn't care if they were big or small or successful or not successful even a failing retailer he would find something that they were doing that he could copy from them and walmart got built on that uh so even even a company like starbucks you know uh our chills looks at the cafes in italy and says you know this can play in peoria illinois and uh clones it you know and it does it does play and then he's gone upscale with you know starbucks reserve and all of that so i i think what i found over the decades is that number one most humans uh, for whatever reason think cloning is beneath them and number two that if you uh don't follow that model it's going to give you a huge leg up in life and dakshana is a cloned model you know i found a guy who was doing something really smart i actually wanted to fund him he didn't want to scale so then i asked him you know do you mind if we copy your model he said no no i would i would actually help you you know and uh so uh pabrai funds was cloned from the buffett partnerships so the buffett partnerships had these unusual rules from 56 to 1970 they ran you know and he had the greatest record and all of that and when i was starting for bry funds in 99 this is three decades after buffett has shut down and in three decades after he shut down what is arguably the most successful hedge fund ever no one had cloned his model no one had cloned his fee structure nobody wanted to do it that way and i was surprised i said wow and i said well don't be surprised monish this is the way humans are they want to leave all these opportunities for you because they don't want to clone and i have so many investors who will not invest in a fund which which charges a 1 or 2% management fee you know uh, we charge no management fee and i didn't come up with that i copied that from warren and so you latch on to a demographic that wants that they want the aligned interests of the investment manager and it and it works so i i have found in the investments that i've i've done well with many of those have been cloned the business models have been cloned the charity has been cloned i mean you know i have no original ideas i'm just the shameless cloner i guess i got to follow up to that so if i think about cloning can you ever get to the point where there are too many cloners let let's take barksha hathaway for example so back in 1979 there were 20 people or 20 potential cloners sat there listening to uh, to charlie and and to warren and then in 2015 there there's 44000 potential cloners does it ever get too competitive or actually is it quite a difficult thing to do so not everyone can be successful as you have with cloning for for whatever reason well what i'm saying is that now the berkshire annual meetings are you know online you know millions of people listen to those all the past meetings are online on buffett.cnbc.com so it's been in the public domain for a long time how many companies do we have that have cloned the berkshire mark almost zero basically because i think the thing is that cloning doesn't work unless you are fanatical about it so you need a very i mean sam walton was a fanatic you know uh, bill gates is a fanatic 
And so it's the fanatics who can make this happen, not the people who say, oh, uh, I think this is going to work and let me give, give this a, a, a go at it. And if you have that type of an approach, uh, you got to go all in, you know. And so, again, for whatever reason, very few humans are willing to go all in. So it's the intensity of the pursuit. So I am not really, really concerned that cloning is going to stop working because the cat's out of the bag or something, or because I'm doing this podcast or whatever. It's going to be alive and well because humans just, you know, large number have aversion to it. The ones who don't have aversion are not fanatical about it. And and the, the other piece is that there are so many areas uh, available for cloning. So even if one particular area becomes somewhat competitive, uh, you have so much other greenfield areas you can go into. Manish, you will correct us if we are wrong. When you started your career with a very big influence of Warren and Charlie, and I think that this even comes across on your first book, The Dan Investor, you were more leaning towards the Benjamin Graham side of value investing. But as your career has progressed, you seem to have leaned more towards the way that Charlie and Warren think about the world. Is your perception of risk change because you have become more experienced or because it has been influenced by the way that they look at the world? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the uh, Ben Graham framework is like bedrock. You know, I think that all of us need that bedrock. So the the idea that it's the stock is not a piece of paper; it's a you know ownership stake in a business. The concept of margin of safety, and uh, and uh, so those those ideas uh, permeate across whether you're doing pure Grammian investing or you go with the Buffett or Munger approach of, you know, the great businesses and so on. They all use this underlying bedrock. The reality of the situation is that we will make a lot more money by having ownership stakes in businesses that grow dramatically in value over time. So if I bought a, a business for 40 cents on the dollar and that dollar never grew or it grew at a low rate, I might make two or three times one. But if I even paid 60 or 70 cents on the dollar for a business that was growing, you know, 10, 15, 20% a year, and I didn't pay that much of a premium for that, Clearly, that's going to be a, a vastly superior approach, not to mention far more tax efficient because you're not, you know, each time paying Uncle Sam uh, when you sell and want to look for buying again. And the other piece of it is that there are only only so many great ideas one is going to find over a lifetime. And so uh, the I think the... The idea that Ben Graham had, that is that you sell a business when it gets at or near its perceived intrinsic value is at odds with the 
uh, theories of Phil Fisher, for example, whose perspective was that um, a great business may surprise you about its real intrinsic value. Intrinsic value is a very difficult thing to figure out for most businesses. So the odds that you may be wrong about an assessment of intrinsic value can be extremely expensive. And so the the model of giving a great business a lot of rope, which is holding it beyond the point at which you think it has passed its, its intrinsic value, uh, would be blasphemy in the world of Ben Grant. But I think that approach is extremely important for true wealth creation over, over long periods. Ben Graham himself made most of his money from owning one particular business for many decades, which was Geico. And so the Geico ownership actually violated the core principles that he was espousing and teaching. Uh, he just felt like he felt like he couldn't teach the approach to find or hold the Geico as easily as he could teach a quantitative approach to investing. So even in Graham's case, half his net worth when he passed away was Geico, and it had trounced the S&P by 7-8% a year over the long holding period. So I, I think that um, the... You know, I think that a Swiss army knife approach to investing is probably best, where there are times that we're going to find anomalies where some not grow that much, but is really cheap and it's very stable, uh, could give us a great return for some time when we don't have a great business that's obvious to buy. So kind of to while our time, if you will. But I think that if we are in the fortunate situation of finding a great business that with a great runway, then we want to hold on to those for dear life. And this is a big mistake I made for many years where I was buying well below intrinsic value and selling right at intrinsic value. And I think it was a mistake. Mondish, you, you brought up uh, Geico there, and obviously that takes us on to the subject of insurance. What well, One element of the Berkshire model is obviously insurance and having some insurance uh, to have a flow to invest. I think that at one point in time, you did have an insurance company, but you chose not to take that on in terms of copying the the, the Berkshire model. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about owning an insurance company and, and why you didn't decide to take that on? Yeah, I think that's a good question. So Warren has repeatedly said that insurance is a commodity business. It's very difficult to, there are some pockets within the large insurance industry where one can have a sustainable competitive advantage. But by and large, the bulk of the industry operates in a commodity-like manner. If I'm a small business and I'm looking for workers' compensation insurance, for example, I'm going to take the low bid, you know. I may take the low bid amongst A-rated carriers or B-plus rated carriers. But once a character carrier, carrier or insurance company is A-rated, the lowest price wins. And so most insurance companies do not have pricing power. And, and Warren has also said that the average insurance company is a terrible business. 
And what what I realized almost right after I made the acquisition of Stone Trust Insurance is that I I think that the first board meeting is becoming clear to me that uh, this is um, not the place I want to be. Um, it was a uh, it was a very commodity business. They were a price taker, and their dumbest competitor was selling price. And so I I felt that uh, rather than go deeper and deeper, getting more and more pregnant with this situation, I wanted to put the toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak, which is not always easy to do. Toothpaste is only designed to come out of the tube, not go back in. So I basically decided I'm going to reverse a course. And we decided to sell the insurance company. And we were we were able to sell it for just about what we bought it for, which I thought was a very good outcome. And we were able to return most of the capital that we had raised uh, back to the investors. Um, the person who bought the insurance company from, from me is extremely happy with Stone Trust. And the difference is that he's a vastly superior operator than I am. Uh, and I remember that when we sold the company to him many years ago, the premiums we were collecting every year were about $65 million a year. That company today, after all these years, um, it's been seven or eight years since we sold the business, uh, maybe six, six or seven years. The premiums last year were 50 million. It's down 30%, but the combined ratio uh, of that business is 62%, unheard of in the insurance business. And so Francis Chu, who bought the business for me, is a unbelievably great operator. I mean, he's got decades of experience. I would never been, have been able to do what he did. So actually, it was a win-win for everyone. It gave Francis a platform to build uh, the insurance side and so, you know, the interesting thing I learned, uh, and, you know, this goes back to the concept of, you know, the great businesses and then the mistakes in investing and all of that, is investing is a very forgiving bus uh, business. You know, even the best investor, probably not going to be right more than half the time, right? You're going to have 50% error rate is just par for the course. And so I realized that when we had bought the insurance company, that this was a mistake. And so I said, okay, uh, can we reverse? Because it's going to consume a lot of brain cells in an activity that I don't want to um, really particularly be focusing on using brain cells on. And uh, so that's what uh, ended up happening. And I learned, I learned quite a bit. I'm very grateful for the experience. I think being able to see the insurance company from the inside, uh, they were very good people. And to be able to see the claims at an individual claim level and, you know, kind of seeing how the sausage is made, if you will, it has been a great experience for me. It taught me a lot and uh, that I'm sure can only help in the future. Even in the case of Berkshire Hathaway, you know, Charlie Munger said a few years back that, in the very distant future, insurance may be a small business at Berkshire. It would not surprise me that 
if and when Ajit Chain is no longer running things, that they may elect to run off that business. Because I haven't heard of them having a second Ajit. And a lot of that business uh, only works because there's Ajit. Just like Stone Trust only works because there's Francis Chu. So these unusual insurance operators are very rare. Can I ask on that? It's, I think it's a difficult, difficult field. But was there any scope if uh, Francis was fantastic on the underwriting side? Was there any chance for you to partner and you be on the investment side and, and he be on the, the insurance side in a similar way that they have at Berkshire? Well, you know, we are old too soon and wise too late. When Francis was buying the business from me, he begged me, to keep a stake. He said, Monish, uh, I really uh, want you to keep 20%, 25%, whatever you want. And he said, let's do this together. And because I had seen this business up close, and I probably underestimated what Francis was all about, if, if he made that offer to me again, I would take it. Okay, uh, but at the time, and he, and he uh, actually repeatedly kept asking me because there were earnouts we had to, uh, you know, we had our future payments were based on how the business performed. And each time he was making an earnout payment to us because the business performed extremely well, uh, he again asked me, "Do you want to roll this into a stake?" You know, and I kept saying no. Yeah, so I mean, I think that uh, Francis is a exceptional underwriter. An operator, and I think he's a good good investor. Uh, but I think he's an example of a guy who's always stayed with Graham. You know, he's a classic Graham investor, and and yeah, I mean, I think that uh, a situation where Francis is the operator on the insurance side, and someone like me is on the investment side. I think it would do even better. I think it would it would do very well. That would be a good that'd be a good marriage. And part of the reason it'd be a good marriage is because he's such a great guy. So I think in terms of chemistry, yeah, you know, in terms of trust and chemistry and competence, I think we would we would have a lot of fun with that. I would have thought- Who knows? We're both young, it might happen at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have thought that the reason why you at the time, thought that it wasn't going to work out was more related to how regulation has changed over the decades that might limit your capacity to make that a great business in the way that they were able to do it with Berkshire. Is that is that a misunderstanding? Well, Berkshire Berkshire has some uh, very subtle aspects of its insurance business that are not available to most other insurance companies. So Nebraska, so, you know, insurance is regulated by state in the U.S. The regulatory regulatory framework for insurers based in Nebraska is vastly uh, superior to most other states. One of the things I had uh, almost finished doing before Francis had bought the business is I had re-domiciled uh, we had started the effort to re-domicile the business in Nebraska 
because I realized once I was in the business and I looked at the the different state laws that it was an advantage to be domiciled in Nebraska. Even if you were not writing a lot of business in Nebraska, there are reciprocal arrangements that the different states have, uh, which give a Nebraska insurer some advantage. I don't know whether that advantage came about because Warren was able to uh, work with the regulators to change some of the frameworks over the years. So the first is that the uh, state of Nebraska has a, a a better regime for insurers who are really good at the investing side. The second, uh, the second big advantage that Berkshire has, which people don't understand, is Berkshire, the insurance companies Berkshire has, are heavily overcapitalized. So if an if a regulator says that if you're writing $100 of premium, I want to see $100 of equity. In many cases in those businesses, Berkshire has $500 of equity. And when you have $500 equity and you're writing $100 of premium, this is the same situation that now Francis finds himself in at Stone Trust because their premium volumes have dropped so much and their um, uh, surplus has increased so much. Uh, the regulator is going to give you a lot of leeway. So to give you an example, when Berkshire bought the Burlington Northern Railroad, normally just at the highest level, what regulators want in terms of an insurance framework is they want the float invested very conservatively into fixed income because that's going to be used to pay people in the future. And they don't have a problem with the surplus being invested in equities because that's kind of the backup, right, for the insurance. Uh, in the case of Berkshire, the regulators in Nebraska have given them the freedom to even invest the float in equities. And when Berkshire went to them and said, look, we're going to buy this railroad. And this railroad, you need to think about it like a bond. So if you think about the way the railroad operates and look at the long history of the railroad, it's producing five to 10 billion a year in cash flow. So it's a bond with a variable. And we're going to put this railroad inside the insurance company. And when you think about the way the float is allocated and the surplus is allocated, please think of the railroad portion being part of the float. And the Nebraska regulators accepted that. And what happened is that they paid about $40 billion or so for the railroad. If they were to sell the railroad today, my guess is it would sell for something north of 120 or 130 billion. Its value has more than tripled, excluding all the huge dividends it's paid out over the years. And now the Nebraska regulators absolutely love the whole railroad sitting inside because they can see the value compared to the publicly traded railroads. And just recently, uh, interestingly, just in the last few weeks, Berkshire did a filing uh, where they showed that they have moved the railroad out of the insurance company. And I know that that would have been a 
fun conversation with the regulator because the regulator said, no, 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 we like the insurer, uh, like the railroad. And Berkshire would have said, well, look, I got $700 of equity for $100 of premium. I'm still going to be $400 of equity for $100 of premium. It's still like four times what anyone else has. Do you have any concern? And one of the things that Buffett did a long time ago, uh, in the 80s, they had a lot of trouble with some insurance operations. I mean, some of these things were really horrendous, 130% combined ratios, 140% combined ratio. They were upside down. These companies were eventually liquidated. Uh, they did really terribly. They could never fix them. They liquidated them. But what Berkshire did at the time when they liquidated these companies is that the parent company uh, stood behind the claims, which they didn't need to do. So even, even, though, even though they had no obligation. So these, uh, these companies were in real trouble, uh, you know, horrendous combined ratios. They were going to be liquidated. Their business model didn't work. And Berkshire at the parent level did not have an obligation to pay off all claims. It was non-recourse. So the claims are only to be paid to the extent that those companies had capital. But those companies ran out of capital. And what Berkshire at the parent company did is they stood behind those claims and they paid every single one of them. And so the regulators basically believe that in the case of Berkshire, there is an implicit guarantee. on these claims. It's not an explicit guarantee. It's an implicit guarantee. Uh, kind of like, like Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, you know, being uh, uh, implicit guarantee of the, of the U.S. government. And uh, so the regulators will always look very favorably upon Berkshire Hathaway because of that history. And so other insurance companies do not have that type of a that type of a, of a reputation with the regulators. That's really interesting. I'm going to uh, change topics a little bit here. You have clearly been gifted with a mind that is very well suited for math and thinking in terms of probabilities. And that probably has helped your career in the way that you've made decisions over time. For those that don't have that inclination or that have been educated to thinking probabilities, what would be the best way for that person to learn to adopt probabilistic thinking? Well, I I think uh, probabilistic thinking is very important uh, for investing because everything is probabilities. Being a good bridge player is a great way to build that probability muscle. So. You can have fun. Bridge is a very fun game. It's a very easy game to learn. I would say it probably won't take more than 30 minutes to learn the game. And one cannot master it even in a lifetime. So it's a great game to continuously keep learning. But I think that Buffett and Munger have gained a lot from playing games like Bridge. Um, I, I came to playing Bridge separately from investing. I actually was playing bridge many years before I became an investor. So it was a coincidence for me that I was playing and loved bridge. But I think that um, 
that can really help the probabilistic thinking. And 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 I think uh, even when one is studying businesses and studying histories of businesses and trying to extrapolate what they're going to go and where they're going to be, one is going to see a range of outcomes. You know, that's just the nature of the way the world works. And so if one is just good at that type of thinking, uh, which games like Bridge or Blackjack can give you, uh, then you're that much ahead. Monish, you, you famously run very concentrated funds. If we can go back to the topic that we started with, which was uh, around risk, how, how do you arrive at that decision to run with those concentrated funds? Yeah, well, you know, if you uh, if you study the subject, you know, uh, the amount of benefit you get in terms of diversification and reduction of risk uh, starts to go down really quickly as you add more positions. So uh, obviously, if you had a single stock portfolio, you know, that's at the extreme end of the risk curve. But once you're at about four or five positions in different industries, you're already quite diversified. Once you take that number up to 10, that's a significant, well, diversified portfolio. But when you take it from 10 to 20 or 30 or 50, uh, now you're hurting yourself because uh, the minimal benefits you would get from diversification would be more than offset with the lack of knowledge of those businesses. So when we when we stay very narrow, uh, we are basically going to be at the epicenter of our circle of competence. We understand those businesses really well. As you start uh, layering on more things and more companies, uh, there's going to be a variance in, in terms of how well you know the businesses. And um, not knowing the businesses well enough, even in a highly diversified portfolio, is risky. So from my point of view, once we get past a few names, uh, the risk profile really does go down. There, which is one thing which has come up on the, the podcast a number of times is the idea of ergodicity, the idea that there's a difference between your, your time-weighted returns um, and just an ensemble average. And so that has implications for the chance of ruin over time. So something which is on an expected value basis looks like a, a good trade to make. If there's a chance of ruin, then obviously that may not be as appealing as, as you think. And if you run with a concentrated number of, of holdings in your portfolio, there's obviously a, an increased risk that you have that, that chance of ruin. So how have you thought about that risk and managing that risk through your concentrated portfolios? Yeah, so you know any number multiplied by zero, no matter how big, is zero. So we obviously don't want to go there. It is in the nature of equity investing that a few of the decisions that you're going to make are, are, are going to generate outsized returns. And uh, so, for example, if I were to look at, let's say, the Walton family owning stock in Walmart, they, you know, Sam Walton during his lifetime when Walmart was not very valuable, he distributed the stock to his kids and all of that. And he passed away. Uh, there have been no Waltons running the business for several decades. Uh, there might be one Walton on the board, but I'm not even sure if that's true anymore. But they've all held the stock. And they've held the stock, and it probably makes up 90 95% of their total assets. And uh, so 
you know, when you look at it from the outside, you'd say, oh, this is terrible. It's uh, so non-diversified, et cetera. They probably know Walmart better than anything else. And uh, from, from their point of view. So I think the if, if we step away from the public market for a second and we look at founders and founders who create a lot of wealth with successful businesses, by definition, uh, the overwhelming majority of the, them are not diversified. In many cases, the companies may not even be public. Uh, so, you know, they may have 90, 95% or more of their net worth in a single stock, even when the company is public. Uh, they may have a significant portion uh, in a single stock. So, uh, and of course, they can be hurt. Uh, and we have plenty of cases where they can be hurt. But the, uh, the other side of the coin, which is that uh, great investment opportunities are rare. And when you find yourself in the happy position of owning a great business, um, and it's it's not overpriced, et cetera. I mean, that's like, you know, really a big sin if you start trimming because, oh, it's more than 25% of the pie. Um, and I, I faced this, situ, uh, this issue in real time. Uh, we invested in a business in Turkey, uh, Resas, which was uh, around 3% of liquidation value when we invested. I think the market cap was around 20, 20 million or so liquidation value was like 600 to 800 million. And of course it was a no brainer investment. Uh, and I was surprised we were able to get a lot of stock. So we ended up getting about a third of the company for about $8 million. Resas now is valued at about five or 600 million. And it used to be, I think until a few weeks ago, it used to be close to 800 million. Uh, but the, uh, the value of the business today is even higher because they've done a few things in the last few years. So liquidation value of that business is well beyond a billion. And, and if I look at intrinsic value and not liquidation value, it goes well beyond that. And so it makes up a significant portion of some of our funds. Every quarter when I write to my investors, I let them know we've got this issue. And I let them know, listen, if you're uncomfortable, you should get off the bus because we're not going to lighten up. And I can't, I can't uh, really justify lightening up RESAS when it's undervalued, when it has great management, a lot of great tailwinds. And yeah, that comes with risk, but uh, we're not going to find you know, a RESAS every two years. That's not just not going to happen. Uh, so anything I replace it with, First of all, there will be a big tax bill, but then anything I replace with with is likely to be inferior. And the other thing that has happened is in the last uh, four odd years of owning it, we've gotten to know the business a lot better than we knew before we invested. And so even though I'm not a founder or a person in management of Resas, I think of it like a business my family owns. And and if if there's a business like Walmart that your family owns, uh, you know, it's probably not the best decision to start looking at, okay, you know, let me diversify and this and that. So it is a double-edged sword. It does come with risks. But also one of the things about investing is that if I look at my friend Nick Sleep in the UK, and Nick basically was very early in investing in Amazon, 
And Amazon became a big part of the portfolio for him. And the UK regulators were giving him some grief about that. And, and uh, he and his partner looked at each other and said, look, we have hundreds of millions of dollars each. We never thought we'd have this, uh, even anything close to this. And uh, why should we let uh, other people tell us what to do? So what if we just returned everyone's money? We just manage our own money. And then whatever Amazon becomes is nobody's business, you know, whatever percentage of the portfolio. And and uh, Nick returns everyone's money. And basically, I think at the time he returned the money, he put everything in three stocks, right? So put a third into Berkshire, a third into Costco, and a third into Amazon. And of course, what happened is Amazon kept going. It The Energizer bunny, it never stops. And... Uh, and it again became a very large portion of the portfolio that he personally was running. It became more than 50, 60% of the pie. And at that point, he himself got a little antsy about that and um, sold off uh, half the Amazon position and bought a company called ASOS, also in the UK, which between us girls is not a good business. It will never be a good business. Um, from my perspective, I think uh, it's a mistake for Nick to be uh, invested in ASOS. And that's a greater risk than a business like Amazon going to zero. If I lo really look at a business like Amazon, it's really multiple businesses. It's not a single business. And if you look at someone like Jeff Bezos, what percentage of his net worth is in Amazon or Andrew Jassy and so on. So... My perspective, if I were to critique that, be so bold as to critique that for with Nick, is he had a very well-diversified portfolio with those three stocks. Each one of those three companies is exceptional. And even if one of the three survived, he wouldn't be in the poorhouse. He would still be fine. So my perspective, if I were him, would be that, you know, just leave them all alone. Let them all be. And if Amazon becomes 80%, so be it. That's okay. That's a good thing. It's really interesting. Thank you very much. Manish, given the levels of concentration that you feel comfortable running, as per what you just explained, wouldn't it be better for you to run a vehicle with permanent capital rather than the current structure that you have? Yeah, I mean, I think eventually... What happens with all of us if we become very successful is the vehicles eventually become permanent. So if I look at Nick's Sleep again, you know, it's a permanent vehicle because it's his own money now. And the same thing happened in many ways to, to Warren Buffett with Berkshire Hathaway. You know, he was such a large portion of the pie. And I'm, I'm not particularly concerned about uh, this. I don't, I don't, uh, get a lot of sleepless nights thinking about, you know, permanent versus non-permanent capital. Uh, I think that um, at the back of my mind, I always feel that, okay, if everybody took all the capital away, right, I still have a decent amount of my own capital. And if I never ever managed anyone else's money, I would still have a happy existence. So, it is possible at some point I could involuntarily be turned into a permanent capital vehicle. And if that happened, uh, such is life, no problem. I think that if the investors choose 
not to have the confidence in having uh, some of their hard-earned assets with you. Um, it's a choice they have and they can continue with their choice and that's perfectly okay. So I don't see a big compelling uh, need or reason to change things from the way I'm doing things right now. I like the uh, families that I that have invested with me. I like the most of our assets are first generation entrepreneurs uh, who are still building wealth. A few of them have uh, retired and such, but uh, it's a great mix. So if that mix continues for uh, a while, that's okay. And if it comes to an end, uh, it will not be the end of the world. Either way is fine. If I may ask a follow-up question on the Turkish example that you provided before, when you are investing outside of the US in places like emerging markets, you are running a risk, which is not only the business risk itself, but also you are exposed to the currency. And Turkey has been going through a rough time over the course of the last, I would say, two to three years. How, how do you think about that in the context of what you were explaining and this, this subject of ergodicity? In fact, uh, RESAS is a really good example to study that from a currency point of view. Before we made the investment, I fully expected that the Turkish lira would get decimated. I expected absolute clobbering of the lira. And it had no impact on the investment decision because I said, if I have a, a warehouse in a prime location in Istanbul with a long-term inflation index lease with Amazon or Carrefour or Ikea, that has a global value and that value will prevail. So cement has a global value and steel has a global value and prime real estate in a place like Istanbul has a global value. So my take was that even in extreme scenarios of currency decimation, we should be okay. And in reality, what happened is that when we invested in RESAS, it was five lira to the dollar. Uh, today, it is more than 28 lira to the dollar. So we, you know, 80 plus percent devaluation. In dollars, we are up, you know, 20, 30x. And in Lira, we are up infinite X, but who cares about that? And then there are two other investments I made in Turkey. One was a Coke bottler and the other was an airport operator. In both those cases, uh, well, in the case of the airport, airport operator, it was very simple because all of their revenues are contractually in euros. Very little of uh, TAB airports uh, revenue is in local lira. Their expenses, a lot of the expenses, staff salaries, etc., are in lira. So actually, in that case, a decimating currency would give them tailwinds because their costs would go down while their revenues would stay intact, which is exactly what has happened. And one of the things that markets do is they stereotype and they use broad brushstrokes. And Turkey was considered uninvestable. It was considered, um, you know, very investor unfriendly. And, you know, obviously any place you go to where the currency has a problem, uh, most investments aren't going to work well. So what I noticed is that the baby got thrown out of the bathwater. 
and what i when i when i sifted through you know we i think i met with maybe 60 or 70 listed turkish businesses over the last few years most of those companies are not investing i think they would face real headwinds in this environment but there were there were a few that the baby got thrown out irrationally and that's what we're looking for we're looking for irrational behavior amongst market participants and so i'm not so concerned about overweighting uh risk of emerging markets or overweighting risk of currencies i think what one needs to be a rational investor and accurately weigh those risks not be paranoid uh about those about those situations in the case of the coke bottler something like 70% of the revenue is not even from turkey it's coming from you know a dozen other countries and the same with tab airport even though they their currency is euros a large portion of revenues are coming from outside turkey so that was actually excellent because now it's a business listed in istanbul facing all the negative perceptions of investors leading to a ridiculous un- undervaluation uh an irrational undervaluation and then the second thing what i noticed is that these three businesses each one of them had off the charts management off the charts owners and just incredible capital allocation so better than what i would find in a lot of uh, developed markets uh, the quality of the people was extremely high uh, the competence of the people was very high the integrity of the people was very high so uh, i think a rational investor should weigh all of these factors in making a decision and uh, so i have a lot of comfort in uh, in the investment we made and the funny thing is that in the last 4 years the clouds over turkey have not lifted there's still a big, lot of big clouds over turkey it didn't stop rasas from going up 20x in dollars didn't stop it still still got there somehow i don't know how it got there but somehow it got there so that's that's kind of how i think about it thanks very much uh, modish um i i can see from your background and for listeners who can't see it you've got a wonderful library behind you and our signature question we ask all our guests is whether you've got a book recommendation so i've got high hopes for for your book recommendation yeah i think the book i read this year that i really enjoyed a lot is uh, the title is uh, what i learned about investing from darwin and uh, it's written by this guy in singapore uh, polak prasad his last name is p r a s a d uh it's an exceptionally well written book he's a exceptional investor and i actually read it twice you know because i i just enjoyed it so much and i felt like maybe i missed a few things but uh Polak uh, is a he's got a good sense of humor so uh, i think it's a page turner it'll, it'll keep you occupied and i think uh, some tremendous lessons and uh, i mean i i made some changes to the way i invest after reading the book which is uh, you know if i can make even iota of a change after reading a book that's a that's a huge home run and uh, so there was a lot of take home value so i i recommend that what sort of changes did you make to your process after this long that a book 
uh, had so much such influence in in you so one of the things like pulak uh, brought up he said that you know the investments he makes one of his rules is that the companies cannot have any leverage right i mean his his perspective is leverage needs to be zero right it's an ex- it's an extreme view his logic for that is that he feels that all companies are going to face tough times you know times are good and times are bad that's just the nature of business and when times are bad and the business has no leverage it can play offense whereas a highly levered company when times get tough which i saw with my dad um you are you know just trying to survive and you're trying to keep the wolves at bay and uh, so that uh, you know the uh, i think the concept of having i mean if you're looking at companies that you want to be around for a long time you know to finish first you have to first finish then definitely reducing leverage or eliminating leverage is going to give you a lot of levers that you can pull now i haven't i haven't gone 100% down the pull up path and of course the portfolio takes time to you know change and such but it's definitely a very important uh, consideration much more important than it was before where in the past i would say okay you know the market cap is 5 billion and they got you know 400 million of debt or 500 million of debt and i would just say okay that's fine and you know just move on but i wouldn't ask myself the question can this business be run without debt can they just eliminate the dividends for a couple of years and wipe the debt out you know why aren't they doing that how do they think about it you know those sorts of things and uh, and i think yeah i mean i think if you look at companies like berkshire hathaway and uh, really the great businesses around uh, they have architected themselves around that so uh, obviously if you lever up a business you're going to juice the return uh but you also take away the resilience and this is just one of the points he makes i think he is he has many other points another interesting point which i also adopted is he does not project he has no projections into the future of what the earnings or cash flows of any of his portfolio companies are going to be and now that might sound like blasphemy like how can you run a portfolio without peering into the future and his answer is that basically it's a exercise in futility because uh, you know we are making assumptions if the assumptions each assumption is off by 20% what you have in the end is garbage you know you you got four or five assumptions and each one's off by some small number uh it's going to create a big error rate and so uh you know pulak's approach is to buy and hold forever he he views any sell decision as a mistake and actually if you go on his website they've listed their entire portfolio you know they run a hedge fund it's closed they don't take new money but they've listed their entire portfolio including every exit and uh, and so the whole thing is public and uh, basically their perspective is that when we're going to go into uh a business and invest in a business um the holding period is forever and if the holding period is forever why are we messing around with dcfs and all that it's irrelevant so really good food for thought hope you enjoy the book 
<laughs> really interesting. Monish Babre, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective podcast. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much.